Good afternoon. It's Friday the 22nd of January 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Uh, your host today, Mike Robinson and Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, well, look, we're going to get straight on because uh, is the lockdown going to end? This is the question on everybody's uh, uh, minds. Boris was uh, out looking at the floods yesterday and uh, he had this to say. I think it's too early to say when uh, we'll be able to lift some of the, some of the restrictions. But I think what we're seeing in the, in the ONS data, in the REACT survey, we're seeing the, uh, the, the contagiousness of the, of the new variant that we saw arrive just before Christmas. There's no doubt it does spread uh, very fast indeed. It's not more uh, deadly, but it is much more contagious and the numbers are, are very great. So as we get the vaccination programme out there, as we continue to expand, and I think we're up to uh, 4.6 million people today, uh, 5 million jabs, we've got to observe the, the lockdown, the stay-at-home message, uh, protect each other, protect the NHS. That's absolutely crucial in, the, in what is unquestionably going to be a tough few weeks ahead. So assuming that uh, everybody hasn't just been immediately sick, uh, what was he saying? He was saying he doesn't know when the lockdown is going to be lifted. Apparently, he's going to be giving a, a briefing, a, a live stream at 5 p.m. this evening to discuss this. Quite a number of people in the Conservative Party uh, pretty unhappy about the fact that uh, there's any danger of the lockdown uh, going past March. Um, and uh, so he has had to come and make a statement. We'll see what it says later on. Uh, but the interesting thing in that little segment, uh, Patrick, was, of course, he's uh, landing on the idea of a new variant, saying that the new variant is very much more contagious. I really would like to know how they know that, uh, and uh, but that it's not so deadly. So, yeah, what's the scientific basis for uh, proving that it's uh, it, it's it's more contagious or it's more transmissible? They haven't produced actually any science uh, to that effect from from day one. It's just assumed that it's more transmissible, right? Well, they've made some statements, but they've never actually produced the data as far as I can see. At least the government hasn't. But anyway, uh, we start getting the first hints of extensions because the BBC reporting this morning that the Northern Ireland uh, lockdown is to be extended until the 5th of March. I'm sure the other uh, regional, national, whatever you want to call them, governments are going to do the same. Uh, we'll see what uh, Boris does later on this evening. Uh, but uh, Hong Kong then has uh, decided to have its first lockdown, is that right? That's right. So uh, Hong Kong is going uh, under lockdown uh, for the first time. Apparently there's a spike uh, in cases. There's a coronavirus outbreak. And so this is really important. And the reason we're highlighting this, Mike, is because uh, you know where China goes, uh, the world goes, or the West goes in terms of, of policy. So we'll be able to see a kind of a fresh situation here where they're going to be implementing uh, things that look like they might be kind of Western-friendly policies, Mike, things that um, people like Matt Hancock and uh, people like Anthony Fauci be drooling over, looking at some of these new innovative ways that China has been able to kind of subdue uh, its population from a technical point of view. I'll show you one of those uh, aspects of this here, and uh, you can see this is what they're they're calling this targeted lockdowns, Mike. So think about big cities in the UK or in the United States or in Europe to have what's called a targeted lockdown. This is China is the beta testing ground. Hong Kong is very Europeanized uh, compared to other Chinese cities. So only residents who show a negative 
COVID-19 test results will be allowed to leave the lockdown area. So the kind of micro quarantines within the cities here, and they've got buildings uh, designated as well, mandatory testing for buildings with confirmed cases in the past 14 days. So wow. So, so this is, uh, you know, we've, we've had our tears uh, in the UK, which is sort of like that, but they're actually taking this down to, to the, the micromanagement level. Yeah, to, to, the, to the neighborhood, the borough, or in fact, the, uh, the housing estate, mm. as it were. Uh, you know, so this is interesting. So I think, I think this is worth paying attention to uh, because, again, the, the whole policy of lockdown is an experimental reactionary policy by government was tested in Hubei, in, in Wuhan, China, and then that was copied uh, by all of the other uh, Western countries. Uh, and then the rest of the world just kind of fell into line with it. Yes. So, so it is important to keep an eye on developments uh, in China in that sense. Uh, well, of course, Boris, uh, they're saying that the uh, Office for National Statistics numbers uh, justifying uh, the continuing extension of the lockdown. So let's just uh, have a look at the latest this week's uh, numbers. So this is uh, from the beginning, of course. Uh, the red line, as usual, showing the uh, uh, all-cause mortality for the UK since uh, the beginning of 2020. The orange line showing the five-year average. Um, and, uh, well, if we put the uh, line on which shows when the first lockdown um, occurred on week 13, uh, we find that uh, immediately after that lockdown, uh, we saw this massive spike in excess mortality. Um, now, of course, the people that uh, are pro-lockdown are arguing that that uh, excess spike is, is all COVID deaths and that those, therefore, those were infections that began a couple of weeks prior to that. Uh, we have been, from the beginning, making the point that those were, in fact, lockdown deaths as a result of the withdrawal of NHS treatment for non-COVID-related issues. Uh, also, the fact that... Uh, NHS uh, support was removed from many care homes in the first uh, lockdown period and so on. Um, but look, if we head over to the right-hand side of this graph uh, and just look at this big dip here, well, a lot of it has got to do with uh, the fact that that was the Christmas New Year period, so statistics weren't uh, quite being reported as normal. Uh, and therefore, and we saw that, for example, during the bank holiday uh, weekend in week 20, uh, was that week 36, 37 there? So... Uh, We've got to keep that in mind when we look at the, the, the significant uh, uh, rise in the number of uh, deaths, apparently, uh, in this first week. We see that it is pretty much following the trend of the five-year average, even though it's higher than the five-year average. But it's still marked, and, and I would say that, bearing in mind that that's when this current lockdown began, um, again, we see a similar trend to what happened during the first lockdown. Now, People may argue that, well, that's infections that have been coming for the, for the previous couple of weeks. From the new variant or, or whatever. But if that's the case, uh, bearing in mind that the government saw what happened the first time, why haven't they uh, taken action to prevent that? Uh, but <laughs> this is the issue here is, I believe, more the fact that once again, we've had NHS treatment withdrawn from people. We're going to come on to where people, where the excess mortality is happening in one second. But I mean, we, in the last couple of weeks, we have been making the point that NHS treatment is being withdrawn from people that are not uh, affected by COVID. So let's just look briefly at the uh, place of death situation. So this is for uh, up to the 8th of January 2021. And there is excess mortality appearing uh, in hospitals. Uh, there's a little in care homes. 
Uh, but the other really significant area, again, is in uh, individual private homes. Um, so this, again, is people that uh, haven't gone to hospital, aren't getting medical treatment, they can't get in contact with their GPs, they can't get a referral to hospital and so on. Um, and uh, and that's and they're dying as a result. So the, the five-year average is the green bar, right? That's correct. And the blue is? Is, is the deaths in for all-cause mortality in week one. So this is mm -hmm. all-cause mortality, not, not attributed to COVID. So um, th this is a complex picture. It's not as simple as to say that the reason for the spike is because of uh, COVID-19, uh, it, because it's much broader than that. Uh, and I'm again, though, however, seeing uh, attribution to COVID-19 where that's not justified. Yeah. So there's there's even another problem within what you just showed, Mike, was that uh, the labeling of, of COVID deaths. Yes. And and po uh, a lot of that, Mike, is down to the uh, really the misuse and some might say the the institutional fraud of of using PCR tests in the wrong way, basically. And so this is going to inflate the numbers of deaths, of cases, et cetera. So this That's is absolutely the case, and we will be showing, covering that in a little bit more detail in just a minute. Uh, but before we go there, um, uh, quite an interesting article here in Spiked. This is a, this is a really fascinating article. This is from uh, uh, Emily Hill, uh, wrote this article for Spiked Online. And she, you know, the headline here, of course, is uh, it's a journalist's duty to question lockdown. And it's, it's quite fascinating because she herself was pro-lockdown back in March. Mm. Uh, like, and she said, like most people, I, was, I supported it. But it was a situation in Cornwall uh, that really opened her eyes, especially recently, uh, where the numbers just weren't adding up. And you had all these major hospitals and almost you know, a handful, if any, uh, COVID deaths uh, in all of these major regional hospitals. And so just nothing, nothing really there. Uh, and then, you know, the, but still this d demonstrative uh, announcements by the government about the, you know, the, the scale of the crisis mm -hmm. and so forth. So she, it didn't add up. So as a journalist, what she did was really saying, and she kind of sums it up here, saying, understandably, many think questioning lockdown is irreprehensible now as it was in March, but asking questions and printing the answers so the public can draw their own conclusions. Key point there is the whole point of journalism. Now, this is really an important, it's a basic, almost a common sense, obvious thing to say, Mike, from a journalistic point of view, but it seems to be the, the entirety of the mainstream media um, can't even go that far. And certainly Silicon Valley, in terms of their censorship, can't allow that level of discourse that they have to throw labels on everything and warnings or even, even censor and take content down. But isn't that what the UK Columns uh, philosophy has been from the beginning? Let's put the information out there. Let's see what different people have to say and allow the public to draw their own conclusions. I mean, isn't that the whole point of, of the free press, of the fourth estate? Uh, it should be. Uh, but of course, we saw with uh, uh, Toby Young's article in The Telegraph uh, from June or July that last week the uh, uh, press regulator censured the uh, Telegraph for publishing that. Now, that was an opinion piece. It was clearly marked as an opinion piece. Mm. Um, but still, the press regulator decided that they have to uphold the government narrative on this uh, and not uh, offer or offer the public the opportunity to think for themselves. And it's a very dangerous position. And, and in terms of the press, Mike, we know, and, and we have reported this from the beginning, that the mainstream media, especially the tabloids, uh, the, they are receiving huge amounts of money from the government in terms of advertising. 
direct advertise, and they're paying rack rate, by the mm -hmm. way, the government. So, I mean, this is a major income source for all these mainstream media outlets. These, this keeping these editors employed, they're keeping the journalist core employed, uh, is, is government spending on COVID, back page uh, ads about, you know, stay at home and all this sort of, really it's, it's propaganda is what it is, but they're getting paid to run that by the government. So they're not, there's no, it's not in their interest to go against the government narrative. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, uh, later on, well, in fact, towards the end of the program, so please stay with us today. Um, we're going to show a little bit of video from a, a Chatham House conference that took place in uh, January, February 2019. It was about flu uh, and uh, H1N1 in particular. Uh, and uh, the, the person in the video is very much discussing how you grab the mainstream narrative and how you keep hold of it and how you persuade people to follow the uh, advice uh, on a pandemic. And of course, this is the role of the media in, in sort of maintaining this narrative of, of a lockdown has been key. Uh, and as you just pointed out, the role of PCR testing in maintaining the narrative, not just in maintaining the narrative in terms of numbers of cases, but also in terms of numbers of deaths and attribution of deaths has been absolutely key. So uh, this uh, is quite interesting. It's doing the rounds of uh, uh, social media at the moment. It's uh, uh, World Health Organization information knows for IVD users uh, 2020 slash 05, uh, but it was uh, published on the 13th of January, 2021. Uh, and uh, well, let's just have a look at what it says. Uh, it says, WHO guidance diagnostic testing for SARS-CoV-2 states that careful interpretation of weak positive results is needed. The cycle threshold needed to detect virus is inversely proportional to patient's viral load. So what does that mean? Well, basically, PCR test takes a sample uh, and it processes it through a number of cycles of the process that it, that it runs. And uh, if you get, you, depending on the number of cycles that you run it through, you get a positive result. If there are fewer cycles, then you're much more likely to have uh, identif identified virus uh, infection. Uh, the more cycles you use, well, the less likely it is that you're actually identifying uh, any kind of virus. So let's go on. You're, you're just picking up dead nucleotides. Well, that's exactly what basically. they're going on to say. So the World Health Organization reminds IVD users that disease prevalence alters the predictive value of test results. As disease prevalence decreases, the risk of false positive increases. Now, this is really important. We're now a year uh, later, pretty much, uh, and there's less incidence in the wild of the virus. Uh, and as a result, no matter what the claims of the PCR test manufacturers about the sensitivity of the test, um, when you have the virus uh, decreasing in society in the wild, um, then you're much more likely to end up with positive, false positive tests uh, as, you know, as a result of PCR testing. They go on to say this means the probability that a person who has a positive result, SARS-CoV-2 detected, is truly infected with SARS-CoV-2 decreases as prevalence decreases, uh, irrespective of the claimed specificity. Uh, and so let's go on and look at what Public Health England has to say about this. Now, this is a, a much older document. It was published in October 2020. But there is a recogni recognition from Public Health England of what the World Health Organization has already said. So let's look at what they're saying. Uh, cycle threshold is a semi-quantitative value that can broadly categorize the concentration of viral genetic material in a patient sample following testing by RT-PCR as low, medium or high. 
uh, a low CT indicates a high concentration of viral genetic material, which is typically associated with a high risk of infectiv uh, infectivity. A high CT indicates a low concentration of viral genetic material, which typically associated with a lower risk of infectivity. And the problem here is, Patrick, that uh, we have been documenting on this program over the course of 2020 and into 2021 um, that uh, we have seen extremely high uh, cycle counts for PCR testing, which um, means very low risk of infecti infectivity, but that will still result in a positive case or a positive death. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that is ramping up the statistics uh, and this is the problem. Sure, sure. So, you know, to sum that up, Mike, in very simply, um, the low cycle threshold counts running lower number of cycles um, is more likely that's, that's going to correlate with finding a, a high viral load that's already present in your system. Running high cycle counts, 35, 40, 45 cycle counts, which is what a lot of these people are doing in terms of testing, um, that's you know, th that means that they're trying to find something, some RNA, uh, one of the few RNA fragments that are uh, calibrated in the PCR machine. Of course, they're going to find that in anything. And by the way, Mike, uh, you, you don't need to have the novel coronavirus or even mm -hmm. have had it to, to, to be able to pick up a false positive on that because some of that genetic material they're looking for is present in other things, including other coronaviruses or uh, things that are already in your body as well. So this is a major problem in terms of standardization of the PCR test, so much so that the inventor of the PCR test, Nobel Prize winner Kerry Mullis, who sadly passed away in 2019, he warned this is not a diagnostic tool. Can, it should not be used as a diagnostic. And in the WHO's document, which you just showed, mm -hmm. uh, another thing that they were careful to mention at the end was that if you do have a positive result of any shape or form with a PCR, it must be correlated or must be backed up by a clinical diagnosis. We're talking about symptoms and possibly even a tissue uh, uh, a sample examination as well. I mean, where has this been in the last year? Uh, nowhere. This is the preeminent World Health Organization. They're supposed to be the gold standard, the Vatican of global health. And they didn't tell us this a year ago? but we've been reporting on it for months. Well, we've been reporting on it pretty much since the beginning because so, this was understood very, very early on in, in the whole process. So the entire pandemic narrative, the case-demic, the, uh, the, the whole basis for lockdowns has been based on this PCR test, the misuse of this PCR test. And, and really, it's institutional fraud on, on a grand scale. And if you think about how much damage it's done to the economy, to society, to children's education, I mean, it's bankrupted countries now. There should be Nuremberg trials at, at some point in the future. Is who knew what and who didn't know what at what time? Because don't tell me that they don't understand how a PCR machine works back in February of 2020, and they're just figuring it out on January 13th, mm. 2021. You've got to be kidding me. Yep. Right. Well, look, uh, we're going to have to move on. But uh, here's Matt Hancock, Secretary of State for Health, uh, the wonderful Matt. Uh, he's come up with a bright idea. He's very keen on it, apparently. I know. Let's give everyone who tests positive £500. Uh, that'll get the testing centre some trade, is what he didn't say. But uh, that's certainly the impression that is being uh, led in the mainstream press. He looks like he needs 500 quid. Uh, well, yes, indeed. Uh, but here is uh, George Eustace, who was doing the rounds of the media this morning, who said that no decisions have been taken and we're always 
keeping multiple policies under review. So basically, this is a paper which is doing the rounds of the Department of Health. Matt Hancock is said to be extremely excited about it. Uh, George Eustace isn't denying that it's under consideration. Number 10 doesn't really know whether it's under consideration or not, apparently. Uh, they haven't seen it, uh, but they said that it would create perverse incentives. Uh, mm -hmm. The Treasury said that it wasn't going to happen, that it was just bonkers. The whole country will suddenly develop a dry cough uh, and, and so, so on. Right. So so the question is, what what is this about? Well, this is another one of this, I believe, another one of these articles which is pushed out there in order to judge uh, you know, public opinion on various things. So they put something out which is pretty extreme. They watch it spreading through social media. They they look at the the commentary. This is all about behavioural analytics uh, and and trying to decide where they are with their uh, control of the population uh, and which are the best narratives to push out. It, it's really they're trying to calibrate how much it's going to cost the government to get more cases. For their data sets, basically. Absolutely. So 500 quid per case. 500 quid per case. That's going to be 450 million pounds a week is roughly the estimate of what that would cost. But don't worry, the UK borrowing hit its highest level on record in December. There's no reason to stop there. We should just keep going, Patrick. It's going swimmingly well, don't you think? If the goal is to implode the economy, of course. Yes, that is indeed the case. Uh, so, OK, let's head over to uh, the United States, Pat. And, uh, well, Joe Biden is the new president. That's right. The pandemic president himself. There is Uncle Joe uh, getting sworn in here. And there's Hunter Biden as, as well, has shown his face in public. Uh, that was quite a shocker. Uh, I was surprised to see uh, Hunter there uh, front and center. But it shows you how fearless Joe is uh, in terms of defending the family name. Uh, but there he is, uh, and this is interesting. This was really a masked affair, which we'll show you uh, in a minute. So he was uh, inaugurated here, guarded by 30,000 U.S. National Guard troops. That's five times more than in Af Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and Somalia combined. Uh, so that's interesting. So everyone's masked. You've got the uh, a military occupation of Washington, D.C., and then you've got this bizarre nobody there, basically. Mm. So it was really, this is the first Zoom inauguration uh, in U.S. history. And they had all these Zoom events after that, and that VIP ticket only, like virtual events where you needed a VIP special ticket. And it's just amazing. So you can see that they laid out the seats here, Mike, and they weren't even all full. But uh, people were arguing, no, that's because they're socially distanced. Mm. Uh, but it's just ridiculous if you consider the fact that there's... Lots of events going on around the country, Mike, where there's none of this, basically, including some professional sporting events. I'm talking about the uh, the NFL football, for instance, mm -hmm. and other things like this. You know, this is kind of over the top. So, but uh, in terms of the the media reaction, Mike was just gushing. I mean, there you, you have to appreciate they've they, they've been suffering from Trump derangement syndrome for the last really five years if you really count the, uh, the the election cycle in 2016 and they're just so relieved that the country has has gotten through this ordeal and they're they're all traumatized all of the uh, media mavens here we'll listen to uh, here's here's one this is CNN uh, this is Jeffrey Tubin here listen to what he's saying about the lights in DC listen to this lights that are that are just shooting out from the Lincoln Memorial uh, along the reflecting pool. It, it, I look, it's like almost uh, extensions of Joe Biden's arms embracing America. It was a moment where the new president came to town 
and sort of convened the country in this moment of remembrance, uh, outstretching his arms. It's just too much, isn't it? Yeah. That's Jeffrey Tubin, by the way. He had to resign back in November or October because he was uh, caught uh, in a performing a sexual act on a, a Zoom call with CNN or oh, yes, yes, with the New York yes, Times. Yes. And really a deviant, but it, it didn't take long for them to get him back. And there, there he is. He's a great journalist. Uh, he's their legal correspondent at CNN. But uh, it gets more ridiculous here. Take a look at this. Uh, this is Jeff Zeleny. He's also funny enough, from CNN. He's talking about the majesty, saying with, with Bill Clinton, Bush, Obama there, uh, the free-flowing conversation, the majesty of the passage of power. I mean, that language, Mike, is just something else, and we're seeing more and more of this. But Bill Clinton fell asleep. He did, pretty much. He was caught nodding off. I think it was because of his mask and just the, the ox oxygen, oxygen deprivation of it all. So, it, but it gets worse, and it, listen to this. This is, um, I think this is CNN as well, I'm not sure, maybe MSNBC, but the, li listen to what they're saying here uh, in terms of, you know, what this, what Biden is and seeing Obama on stage with Biden, Clinton. Uh, go ahead and roll this one. It was, to me, so striking about today was that kind of comforting sense even with the masks, even with the distancing, even without the crowd, you know, those shots inside Statuary Hall that we're familiar with, you know, from every inauguration, the, the, the sight of uh, the Clintons and the Bushes and the Obamas, you know, the, the Avengers, you know, sort of the <laughs> Marvel superheroes back up there together all in one place. Well, with their friend Joe Biden, all of them, I think, feeling like that, that all of them sharing that same view that a lot of Americans had, which is that, you know, we did narrowly avert catastrophe in America and that they were all there to kind of, you know, kind of to buttress their buddy Joe Biden and see him in some ways as the as the natural and necessary. Does, so, does Biden strike you as a Marvel superhero? He needed to be buttressed. <laughs> it's just a basic. <laughs> Could be like the guy in the X-Men in the wheelchair played by Patrick Stewart. Maybe that's the closest thing I could say Biden is to a superhero, maybe a mutant of sorts. But, I mean, look at the, the infantilization of politics, Mike. You can see there, this is how the American public is, has become. They've, been, they've, they've turned the whole thing into a spectator sport. And literally, politicians are like Marvel superheroes. Mm -hmm. I mean, what they're projecting is just incredible. Mind you, many of these people are really traumatized by Trump. And um, they just, they're, they're really happy and they're just kind of, in a celebratory mode here. Let's take a look at the masked ball, though. Uh, you can see here they are. There's uh, Joe Biden. There's uh, his doctor, Jill Biden, uh, with her uh, latex uh, wash-up gloves, and Kamala Harris and her husband. I, his name escapes me because he's rarely uh, spoken of in the media. But there they are, all masked up, and that is really the, the main message from this inauguration, Mike. It's about masks. It's about compliance. It's about conforming to social distancing and, and all of these things. And so the mass ball continued here. Uh, we got a shot here. This is Lady Gaga, who uh, made an absolute meal out of the U.S. national anthem. That was regrettable, but there she is in her mask, given a prime seated position there uh, up on the podium. Uh, and so, and then here's Pete Buttigieg, and um, and Mrs. Buttigieg. Or Mr. Booty, I don't know who's the husband, who's the wife. But anyway, <laughs> it's Pete and his partner, uh, his husband. Um, maybe I got that wrong. 
Anyway, they're, they're wearing two uh, masks. Two masks. So this is two really, masks each. Yes. Yeah, so, yes. So two masks are better than one. So each of them are double, double layered there, and you can see um, his husband has the tartan, Scottish tartan, there. And uh, I mean, this is just such a scene, Mike. So it doesn't get any better as well, uh, because an executive order was signed immediately. Uh, executive order on protecting the federal workforce and requiring mask wearing. So Joe Biden has done it. He's followed through his pledge for a, na a national mask mandate on federal property. Now this is important and social distancing because this includes airports, bus stations, train stations, uh, any of these federal transit areas as mm -hmm. well. Um, um, it, quite possibly on military bases as well. Certainly there's gotta be a safety issue there in terms of being able to identify uh, criminals and so forth, Mike. But uh, in, in, uh, in terms of other executive orders here, uh, racial equality and support for underdeserved communities, you, you're getting a picture of what's coming down the pipeline now. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all about social justice, uh, wokeness, and so forth. And so rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, of course. So these are by executive order. Uh, and so there's just going to be a raft of these undoing all of the bad things that Donald Trump has done. All of the bad things that Donald Trump has done or? By executive order. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I predict that Joe, Joe Biden's going to exceed all previous presidents in terms of number of executive mm -hmm. orders. Trump was actually the lowest number of executive orders of the last uh, uh, four, pre three presidents, I think, built, you know, at least, yeah, I think it was lower than. Uh, and yet every time he created one of these executive orders, that was him undermining democracy, if I remember rightly. All, all hell broke loose. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So he was pretty timid there. And this is interesting. We're looking at how this is being covered in the British press. Of course, you've seen the, the papers over the last few days here. And this is what they've got. Kamala Harris, a president in waiting. This yes. is right out of the BBC here. And they're pushing this through the kind of youth channel, BBC Sounds, which are really promoting heavily right now during mm -hmm. lockdown. So trying to get people to come to the BBC for, for music and entertainment and, and podcasts. So th this is really the agenda here, which is that uh, Kamala Harris is expected to assume the presidency um, at 78. How much longer does Joe Biden have? He will be bundled out of the White House, uh, either in a wheelchair or whatnot, within, who knows, 12 months, 18 months, two years. Um, he's, he was hardly compass mentis on the campaign trail, and so they think that he's just going to miraculously perk up because he's been sworn in as president. But really, he's really not in his prime, of course, mm. <laughs> So, uh, in terms of energy. The energy that's required to lead a country like the United States. Uh, so um, although I question Kamala Harris has any of those qualities mm. either, uh, but uh, that's how that's looking. And, um, and so the big question, Mike, is foreign policy. Okay, what is this White House going to look like? How is it going to be different from the previous administration in terms of, of foreign policy? Well, they're already being described as, as uh, wartime po uh, policies that are being pushed through. I think the BBC, when they used that term and other mainstream media were perhaps uh, talking about this war narrative with respect to COVID. But does it, is it limited to that or is it broader than that? Uh, it's it's that that's an important part of it, but it's it is broader and it does have real implications here. Let's take a look at what some of those implications are. And this is a great article in Politico, and I encourage people if you want to know what's going to be happening in terms of the UK and the United States, 
Are they going to be shoulder to shoulder in lockstep? What policies are they going to be pursuing in tandem with post-Brexit, let's say, and vis-a-vis and -vis the EU? And so, so Biden says, we'll work with you on China. So China's a big set piece uh, in terms of this. Now, apparently, the, the EU and China are, are slightly sour on, on the recent deal. So it looks like Britain's making a play, global Britain's making mm -hmm. a play to do better than Brussels in terms of its relationship with China and Biden's signaling that we're in there shoulder to shoulder potentially with you uh, on what you're doing in terms of, of China and all the concerns. The, the Uyghurs uh, in Western China, that, that human rights issue, they'll be with Britain on that, um, uh, on uh, Huawei mm -hmm. as well, and a few other issues, uh, a few other issues in terms of trade and so forth. So that's interesting. And let's look at some of the other highlights here in terms of the special relationship. Let's take a look here. It's interesting they've gone for this image of Joe with the kind of orange permatan. That's very... It's very Trump-like. It's very Trumpian. And I think that's really interesting that this is the imagery that's come out. You can see his chin has been completely rebuilt since March uh, 2019 when he went under the knife. That's another story we can pursue at another date. Let's take a look at this. What, what we derived from this, Mike, they're talking a lot about the, the G7 coming up in Cornwall. Mark Sedwell clearly, clearly running point on UK foreign policy, at least in terms of the interfacing with the United States. I don't know if you've picked that up. Uh, oh, absolutely, yes. We have, and we've mentioned it on the program, uh, the, the, the uh, UK-US forums that he is, is running. Yeah, it, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. So you've got to watch Mark Sedwell and what he's saying. And COP26, they're making, they're really starting to hype this up. Joe Biden being a, a, a pandemic president, being a Green New Deal guy, being back in the Paris Accords, this is going to sort of inject a lot of new energy into the uh, climate change uh, movement, if that's what you, what you want to call it. G7 in Cornwall, Karen Pierce, and Global Britain. This, this is their big showcase so this is going to be in june i believe and uh, my understanding is that uh, biden is going to attend that personally if he's still around uh, he will attend it personally he's apparently coming to plymouth to do some kind of uh, uh, mayflower celebration uh, as well one year late some or it could be a woke mayflower uh, that's most likely yes celebration here this is interesting and this is what you got to look at d10 what is the D10? Well, this is being floated right now, the Democracy Alliance. So this is effectively, according to this, the G7 plus India, South Korea, and Australia. So what they're trying to, to pair India away from the BRICS and get them separate from China? Yes, as a, quote, democracy. Yes. So then all the decisions to intervene internationally will be backed up, and they'll be, this will be a talking shop for interventions to help spread democracy. Magnitsky sanctions those who are guilty of, quote, human rights abuses. They'll be able to pursue them unilaterally, uh, extrajudiciously, uh, with wherever they are in the world, and this will be an automatic military uh, intervention trigger but based on Magnitsky sanctions or just basically going for members of government, elected officials, cabinet, wherever they are in the world, slapping these sanctions on them, isolating them, and just using that. It's a continuation of of what's been building over the last couple of years. Dominic Rabb, this is interesting, not expected to visit Washington until the coronavirus situation allows. So social distancing between Britain 
in the United States. Several, several thousand miles in, in that case. Yeah, yes. so the Atlantic Ocean is a social distancing zone, but only absolutely essential diplomatic exchanges while the virus cases remain high. What, what does that mean? I thought all diplomacy was essential. Mm. So, uh, and apparently virus cases are high in Washington, or is that in Britain? It's very confusing. So again, using COVID to determine now diplomacy, uh, that's quite uh, an extraordinary thing. So, and then we'll move over just across the English Channel. Emmanuel Macron calls on Biden for greater U.S. involvement. What's he talking about here? Well, think about it like this. OTAN Akbar, okay? It's about NATO, Mike. It's about NATO interventions. The Obama doctrine, the Clinton doctrine is back. Make no mistake about it. So proxy wars, uh, arming uh, extremists, having another bash at Syria, mm -hmm. uh, getting active in, in Iraq again, that's exactly what this is about. So in, in Northern Africa as well, Libya, for instance, or wherever the next hotspot is, the Suhel region mm. uh, in Africa as well. You talked a lot about that in the past. Well, let's look at how this works out in terms of in lovely uh, face, face mask there. What does that remind one of? Who knows? Uh, I am certain that in the coming weeks, the new administration, the Biden administration, will need to make key decisions that will mark a greater commitment and awareness in the fight against terrorism in, he's talking about in Syria and Iraq, Mike. So it, really they're signaling that they're gonna be back in the Middle East again. Mm. So really undoing Trump's withdrawal, uh, bringing the troops back. And how does this play out in reality? We'll take a look at this. This is just yesterday. Baghdad bombing could be Biden administration's first challenge. Lo and behold, the day Biden is sworn in, just magically, a bomb goes off in a market in Baghdad. Mm. And guess who takes credit? Well, you can just figure it out. Now, now because of this, Biden considering reversing Trump's drawdown in Iraq by adding thousands of troops to combat growing terror threats in the region, as evidenced by Thursday's attack near the U.S. Embassy. And we've been told for the last six months that the terrorism is down in the region mm. and that the threat is down and the U.S. were withdrawing troops and all of a sudden with Biden comes a new narrative and bombs. Isn't this interesting? It's, you know, if... Just a coincidence, must be. If he's being played by another actor in the region who might be a US, quote, ally, mm. one would think this would be the perfect way to go about doing that. And yes. lo and behold, take a look at this. The Islamic State claims responsibility for the two suicide bombings that killed over 30 and injured more than 100 in central Baghdad. Now, this isn't a direct quote, but if they could quote, this is what they would be saying. ISIS, that's right, we did it. We bombed some random market stalls. Thank you for the headlines. We're begging you, Biden, please, please occupy Iraq again. That's the subtext uh, of that. So it's as if by magic, as if by magic. It's incredible. So back to the foreign policy, uh, it is about, it's about inclusion. It's about gender. And most of Biden's uh, cabinet appointments have been female, okay? So here she is, Avril Haines. She is being uh, put forward as the director of national intelligence. She'll be the first female ever. Uh, so again, shattering that glass ceiling like Gina Haspel did, the torture in chief of the CIA. Uh, it's good that we have uh, a female in that position. Here she is with James Clapper and uh, Thanos John Brennan two men who lied to Congress, by the way, and didn't serve any time.
time for it. And so here's uh, Shane Harris from the Washington Post. The Senate has confirmed Avril Haines, the first woman to lead the intelligence community. So a lot of excitement about the fact that women are filling all these these posts. So it's about women and minorities. That is the main focus mm -hmm. of the Biden administration. So it's an affirmative action cabinet and government, basically. It's quotas along identity politics lines. What could possibly go wrong, go wrong there? So, and this is, uh, well, let's just call this, let's call it inclusive bombs. This is a, quite an amusing cartoon. And he's saying, hey, they say the next one will be sent by a woman. And the woman below says there in her hijab, uh, really makes you feel like you're part of history. So this, again, inclusive bombs are better than non-inclusive bombs. So the mm. patriarchal bombs, bad. Inclusive uh, bombs, Woke, good. inclusive drones and bombs, good. So, uh, but the wokeness doesn't stop there, Mike. Uh, of course, what, what kind of cabinet would it be without the first transgender cabinet appointee here? This is uh, Dr. Rachel Levine, uh, the new assistant health secretary who will be basically running the COVID uh, agenda in the United States. So uh, Dr. Levine will be giving briefings every day uh, to, the, to the country. Looking forward to those. <laughs> so you can imagine. Now, here she is here. We've got a clip of her. This is when she was from Pennsylvania. She was uh, the head of public health, really running point on the COVID coronavirus task force in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, which was a disaster in many respects, which we'll show you in a minute. But uh, here is uh, Dr. Levine here, and she was always good to sanitize her hands uh, before she started talking uh, at all of her events. So again, Joe Biden surrounded by women and every, everybody, everybody. So <laughs> what happened in Pennsylvania? Well, apparently, uh, Health Secretary Levine, when she was at Pennsylvania, she was basically dumping the patients into nursing homes, the same sort of disaster that we saw in mm -hmm. New York. And, and, and in the UK. And the UK as well. And what did she do? While she was doing this, she removed her mother, her 95-year-old mother, out of the care homes. Uh-huh. So right. this is the person Joe Biden has appointed to basically be one of the people in charge of, of COVID. So really, they took one of the worst, potentially the most scandal-ridden uh, public health officials uh, in the country and said, you'll do. And so Dr. Levine is now going to be running point here. So uh, one of the big themes, Mike, um, after the D.C. protests and that, that the Democrats have used to basically a military occupation effectively of the Capitol, supposedly to protect democracy and protect the inauguration that nobody was at because half most of it was on Zoom. But anyway, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the specter of domestic terrorism. It's mm -hmm. the white nationalism, uh, the, the racist Trump supporters, uh, the, 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 the attempted coup, attempted sedition, insurrection, etc. All these sort of hyperbolic terms that have been now rendered meaningless uh, and so this is a declaration here from the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Now, they're pushing back on the, the possibility that the government's going to push a domestic terrorism statute, a whole new range of domestic terrorism statute uh, to combat the, the scourge of white nationalism and so forth. And they're basically pushing back against it. They oppose it. And uh, this is a little bit of a statement. This is a letter that they drafted here to Congress 
and uh, slightly long-winded, but it's just historic and should be should be duly noted. And you can see this is a coalition of a number of uh, different groups here, and they absolutely oppose the groups identified. Uh, other actions Congress can take to address the long-standing and ongoing threat posed by white supremacists uh, and urge them to abstain from passing any additional domestic terrorism laws. So there's, you know, the, they're still pushing, the civil rights groups are pushing this idea that, um, you know, there's, there's a huge white supremacist problem in America, which is like probably a dubious statement uh, to say the least, but they're also pulling back on government's uh, overreach on this. So it's a bit of both. I mean, this is a big problem in the media because this term's racist, uh, white supremacist, white nationalist. So even nationalist is being conflated with uh, a, a racial uh, extremist position. And so nationalism isn't necessarily a racial uh, idea. It's, it's, uh, it's the difference between globalism and nationalism. You can see the, the, the dialectic that the government and the media are trying to create uh, and using Trump and using some of these outrageous uh, uh, events like the DC protests, stroke riots on Capitol Hill. But still, it's still a bridge too far for some of these left-wing civil rights groups are still pulling back and saying, this isn't good because if the federal government passes all these new, quote, domestic terrorism statutes, those are gonna be used to target minorities again in the future. Uh, but a couple of uh, uh, domestic terrorist events, uh, staged or otherwise, uh, will sort that out, won't it? Well, sh certainly will. And you know, <laughs> that's a good point, Mike. Where's, what's the media gonna do for coverage now that Trump's gone? Mm. It's been 24 seven, Trump outrage, leaks from the White House, you know, panic. Oh my God, Donald's done this, he's tweeted that. What are they gonna do for ratings and coverage? Well, the, the fear is that the establishment will need to fill that vacuum with other spectacles, mm. uh, unfortunately. And so, uh, like many of the spectacles we saw during eight years of the Obama administration, uh, which was a mass shooting every week, uh, and domestic you know, pipe bombs and dumpsters, and you know the whole country coming to a grinding halt because of some terror threat yeah. somewhere. I mean, this stuff was just running through the media like crazy. And half of these so-called so plots were uh, basically featured FBI informants, mm -hmm. uh, and this is this is documented by uh, the the great journalist Trevor Arison in his book and others. So again, is this what we're going to see? In the next, you know, few years, we're going to see a, a reboot of this kind of time uh, domestically. We saw under Obama with domestic terror, Islamic terror, and so forth. They, the uh, last thing I'll say, Mike, is the Islamic terror threat in America during the Obama administration. Some of those dubious events, like San Bernardino, mm. was used as the legal basis for the anti-ISIS operations mm. in Syria and Iraq. They needed a domestic terror incident in order to make the foreign intervention, quote, legal under U.S. or international law, at least dubious enough that it wasn't, you know, illegal and it wasn't against uh, international law in terms of how they interpreted it. Of course, other people disagree. But the last thing was Julian Assange uh, did not get the pardon that uh, his supporters were expecting, Mike. And uh, this is what Tucker, Car Tucker Carlson said. He's talking about the Senate leader there, former Senate leader Mitch McConnell, Republican, sent word over to the White House, if you pardon Julian Assange, we are very much more likely to convict you in an impeachment trial, okay? That's, and I, I tend to say that this is probably true. It's a, probably a credible claim. Mm. There's a lot of dirty uh, games going on in the background, partisan horse trading. This is not 
unusual in Washington. But the fact that they're uh, doing that in this case, Trump, I think, missed a huge opportunity to really go down in history as a champion of free press and free speech. And what he caved to the uh, political pressures going on, these uh, so-called impeachment after the fact uh, is supposed to take place in the next couple of months, which is in itself ridiculous. You can't impeach somebody who's no longer president, but they might go along with it anyway. Uh, well, they're determined to try to make sure that he can't stand again. That, that's the main reason. And I think they want to squash the Trump, uh, Trumpian Republican populist movement, the rank and file Republicans. They still believe they can go back to the good old days of, you know, George Bush's Republican Party or, you know, John McCain and, you know, Mitt Romney and, and, and these these characters, and it's moved on from there. Uh, look at the election results. Donald Trump shattered a lot of records that the Republicans previously held in terms of elections and votes, and that's a sort of support. So you know that's not going to be rolled back uh, simply by attacking uh, Trump and hunting down his supporters. I think, in fact, the opposite might be true uh, going forward. Okay, well, fantastic. Thank you very much for that, Patrick. Now, if you like uh, what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, then please join us at ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Uh, the chat box today, uh, absolutely uh, full and uh, uh, lots of interesting conversation going on there. So thank you guys for that. So join us at ukcolumn.org forward slash community if you'd like to support us. Uh, other ways you can support us are to share our material. So obviously uh, on uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, BitChute, and dlive.tv. Um, right, let's uh, move quickly on to vaccine safety. And here is uh, June Rain. Uh, she's the interim chief executive of the MHRA, which is, of course, the medicines regulator in the UK. Uh, and uh, she said there's uh, nothing unusual in what we're seeing in terms of uh, vaccine adverse reactions. Um, now, this has come about because, as we reported uh, on Monday's program uh, in Norway, uh, they had announced uh, several, you know, 23 deaths. 13 of which is investigated uh, as a result of the vaccine or apparently as a result of the vaccine, or maybe after a couple of days, they started to backtrack on that because they got, came under a bit of pressure. But nonetheless, uh, there was uh, questions raised about the fact that this uh, Pfizer vaccine in particular was, was pushed through so quickly. Um, she, uh, however, went on to say this, reports are coming in really thick and fast. Now, this is to the yellow card uh, scheme, which is all about um, uh, adverse reactions as a result of the vaccines. So that's quite an admission from the MHRA. They've got reports of adverse reactions coming in really thick and fast now. Is that? Yes, oh, really? that's what she's saying. We'd like to hear about those. Well, we'll come on to that in one second. Now, of course, uh, June Rain herself, uh, she has been a, a career civil servant. Uh, she uh, was on the assessment committee, co-chair of the World Health Organization's Advisory Committee on Safety of uh, medicinal products. Uh, her special interests apparently are risk communication and patient involvement. Uh, and she's been leading a program of work on medicine for women's health. Uh, so that's all good stuff. Now, uh, of course, on the let's just look at the history of this. Um, if we look to the BBC here, COVID-19 Pfizer BioNTech uh, vaccine judged safe for use in the UK. So that was December when the announcement was made that they were going to uh, that it was judged safe, uh, and, and on what basis? Well, it was on the, this basis because uh, she had told the BBC that the benefits of the Pfizer vaccine far outweigh any risk, despite the fact that there had been no proper risk assessment of what the risks would be. This was just her judgment, her guess, basically. Um, 
So where does that take us? Well, the EU uh, criticised that hasty uh, judgment in December, if you remember, uh, and then they very quickly went and did it themselves mm -hmm. uh, because, of course, the pressure came on the even on the EU. Um, and I might add, just to just to add one caveat, Mike, how could you claim to know anything about the long term or mid medium to long term safety? Of, of a product and effectively an experimental technology, mRNA vaccines. How could you know anything about the medium to long-term safety effects after only six or seven months of development? Well, we're gonna come on to that in a second. Uh, so uh, next, we'll just remind ourselves that uh, she also claimed that the MHRA had not cut any corners to approve the Pfizer vaccine. Is that true? Well. Phase one, phase two, and phase three. Normally there are three phases of uh, trials for these vaccines. Uh, phase one and phase two apparently have been completed. Uh, but here's uh, phase three uh, from the US uh, government website, clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, and if we just look at this in more detail, uh, estimated study completion date, January the 27th, 2023. So we're in phase three trials at the moment, and yet the vaccine is being uh, rolled out and is being pumped into people's arms. The only conclusion that I can really come to here, Patrick, is that uh, the public are part of this uh, phase three trial, whether they are aware of it or not. What other conclusion can you draw from that, Mike? I mean, <laughs> this is the biggest live uh, clinical trial in human history. Yes. In terms of uh, drugs and pharmaceuticals. They're literally using the public at large as the test group. And, and there's there's pretty broad recognition of this, Patrick, which is why we continue to see headlines like this. This is from the Glasgow Times, Coronavirus Scotland, uh, care home staff not given enough information on COVID vaccines. And what they're saying is that uh, Deborah, Deborah Clark, who's uh, a, a, the Unison Secretary, uh, Trade Union Secretary, uh, is saying that she expects some workers to launch legal action over mandatory immunization. In, in other words, they're being told they can only keep their jobs if they're if they're immunized. Um, but the point here is that, that they are. The Sunday Times had reported nearly 30% of social care workers in Glasgow had uh, could be said to be skeptical about taking this vaccine. Um, so uh, Deborah Clark, speaking to BBC Radio Scotland, said the problem is there's very little information out there, and the anti-vaxxers are winning. Uh, there's, a re <laughs> there's a reason behind these high figures of refusals, and that includes a lack of education and the fact staff aren't getting a choice of which vaccine they can have. Most members I speak to say they just want to wait a couple of weeks to see what happens. In other words, they want to wait and see for the people who get it, how many of them have an adverse reaction. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a natural human response, isn't it? If you have any... Uh worry, you know, concerns about your own personal safety or your family's personal safety. That's not a reasonable thing for a human to expect a human to do. No, what, no, not at all. What, what is unreasonable, Mike, and what's shocking, and what you've just shown there absolutely is a case in point, Mike. What happened to the left, okay, what unions? They used to be pro-civil liberties and always questioning the government, going against the government. Now, the unions are basically you know, fettering out government policy and, you know, requiring union members to get vaccinated to work. I mean, talk about an abrogation of civil liberties. 
What's, how, when did this flip take place? I mean, this is unbelievable. Well, because the government has moved so far to the left that uh, they find themselves in alignment with the policies. And this, this is something that the left enjoys, is, is this kind of centralized totalitarianism. And maybe I'm being a bit unfair, but that, that's how it looks to me. I, I would think the union would be taking the opposite, you know, trying to protect the, the civil liberties or the right to choose, for instance, right? I mean, that's, but that's not how it's going. That is shocking. But look, the key point there is this idea of mandatory immunization. We've made this point many times. The government insists there will be no mandatory immunization. But of course, if your employer is making it mandatory, then that's mandatory, whether it's legally mandatory or not. It's it's a condition of, of employment. Therefore, it becomes mandatory. So it becomes mandatory by fiat via various institutions like this that, that are really kind of that's what the government wants to do but can't do officially, Yes. right? But it's being kind of done under the table through all of these institutions and even corporations. Major employers do this as well. Um, but uh, it's, not just, uh, it's not just employers uh, because the other question is where are we going to stand with in, in terms of our relationship with corporate entities? Uh, and here is one saga this has been doing the rounds. We've got quite a lot of coverage on uh, on uh, Twitter, as we'll come on to in one second. Uh, so what are Saga saying? Well, you can see quite clearly there, uh, all customers must be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 at least 14 days for traveling with us. So if you want to go on holiday, uh, you've got to have a vaccine. Now they're saying that uh, most of their customers are in the age groups that are, that are being vaccinated. So by May, uh, they're expecting most people that would have been going on holiday with them anyway. Uh, to have had a vaccine so they're saying it shouldn't be too much of a problem but i just thought we would just have a look at some of the because they tweeted this out yesterday and i got quite a response on uh, on twitter i just thought we'd have a look at some of the uh, responses that they got so here's one from yvonne saying why uh, you do know that coercing people to take a vaccine they don't want in order to access the services a contrary to the nuremberg code and b discriminatory would have thought saga would know all about these things well would they but do you think that's a fair point uh, I don't, th it sounds hyperbolic, Mike, but actually considering what's being done here, I don't think it is. It, it, technically, it is a fair point. Why not? Why not? I, I would expect headlines, you know, major columnists used to say things like this yes. in the mail and other papers. They're not saying it now. Uh, this is true. Uh, let's see the next one. Uh, they've worked out their audience is likely to be anti-choice. So this is just marketing. Well, their audience may be anti-choice. I'm not convinced that they are entirely anti-choice. I'm certainly not convinced that it's marketing. I think it, you might call it virtue signaling, perhaps, mm. uh, or they're feeling that they are obliged to do it. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, let's uh, move on to the next one. Uh, we need to wake up and fast. Uh, here's how it's going to play out. There are already advanced plans in place for digital health passport. This is how they'll be able to control us. We'll need to, it will need it to do anything in the future. You see where this is all leading. Sinister. Well, it is indeed sinister, and we've been talking about that on this program. There are so many companies now absolutely pushing to get into this market for immunity passports, vaccination passports, whatever you want to call them. Um, many, many companies lobbying the government for That's this. Right. The government has been talking about it pretty much since the beginning. And although at this point they deny that they're going to implement it, of course, we would not be unjustified in presuming that they're lying because they've been lying all the way through this entire process. It's the same corporate grift that we saw after post 9-11, Mike, with all these companies rushing to get into the uh, security and surveillance space, 
body scanners, all of these other security applications, private security companies, technologies, Homeland Security, which is a massive gravy train, by the way, in the United States, all mm -hmm. the contractors. Are, this is identical to post 9-11 in terms of the corporate rush to get in there on adoption, standardized, whatever the surveillance, biosurveillance in this case. Yes, uh, and here's Peter Wood saying, I know that they say that all publicity is good publicity, but Saga Holidays UK, uh, have you really thought this through? I have a Saga brochure on my desk as I make plans, regardless of my position on vaccines, I will not be coerced. My medical history is private. Well, in fact, I'm not quite sure, Peter, that you're right there. I think that you'll find that uh, unless you've, well, and possibly even if you've opted out, your medical history has become much less than private in recent months and years, mm. uh, and it's being shared with all and sundry. Uh, let's look at the next one. Uh, but according to Article 6 of the UNESCO Universal Declaration of Bioethics and Human Rights, you have the right to say no to vaccination without retribution. Uh, it states the, the consent should, where appropriate, be expressed and may be withdrawn by a person concerned at any time and for any reason without disadvantage or prejudice. Now look, this Convention on Bioethics and Human Rights uh, is a UNESCO convention, but it's only a convention. It's, it was signed up to by 191 countries, uh, but it didn't. there was no follow-up in terms of actual international law, so it's not binding in any way. Um, the principle is there, and actually that same principle was expressed in the, uh, in the um, training documents, which we showed on this program uh, several weeks ago for the uh, army of volunteers that are going to help uh, roll out the vaccine in the UK. Uh, and so uh, that, that principle is expressed in there, but I don't see the government actually campaigning for companies to, uh, uh, to sort of abide by that principle. I wonder why. Uh, and then finally on this one, then, yeah, the animals that usually get tested before the humans in the trials are saying that they're waiting for the human trials to be completed. This is uh, quite astute, and we'll uh, come back to this at the end of the program. Perhaps Saga should rebrand, Mike. Maybe they should call themselves Pathway Holidays. What do you think? Pathway Holidays. Kind of catchy, yes. yeah? Yes. Well, anyway. Uh, okay, let's, uh, let's end with this one, uh, and that is the Influenza Preparedness Stakeholder Conference on the Centenary of the 1918 Pandemic. And this took place in January 2019. It was run by Chatham House, which is the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Uh, and there were all kinds of people at this. Um, so uh, I'm going to show a little bit of video here by, uh, of, of, sorry, Mark van Ranst, who's the Belgian, or was the Belgian flu commissioner. Uh, and he was talking about um, the importance of the use of the media uh, in pushing forward a narrative when it comes to this kind of public health uh, issue. And remember, this was over a year before uh, we started to see exactly the things he was talking about happening in real life, so to speak. Um, so have a listen to this. I was asked to, to tell you about my experiences being the, the crisis manager, the flu commissioner for, for Belgium and, and, and highlighting the communication uh, aspects there. And then you have one opportunity to do it right. I mean, day one is so important. Uh, in day one, you start your communication with the press, with the people, and, uh, and you have to do it right. I mean, you have to go for one voice, one message. In Belgium, they chose to uh, appoint a non-politician to do that. I mean, I have no 
party affiliations, and that makes things a little bit, at that time at least, a little bit easier, because you're not, you're not attacked politically, majority-minority. Uh, that doesn't come into play, and that was a huge advantage. The second advantage is that you can play in Brussels the complete naive guy and, uh, and get a lot more done than you would otherwise be, uh, be able to do. You have to be omnipresent that first day or the first days so that you attract the media attention. Uh, you, you make an agreement with them that you will tell them all, and if they call, you will pick up the phone. When you do that, then you can profit from these early days to, uh, to get complete carpet coverage of the field, and they're not going to search for alternative voices there. And if you do that, that makes things uh, a lot easier. And then you have to say, okay, well, we will have H1N1 debts. Of course, that would be unavoidable. Uh, I used there Sir Donaldson's uh, quote, where he said that in the UK, by the peak of the epidemic, 40 people would die uh, per day uh, at the end of the summer. Uh, so. 62 at that time, million people in the UK, 40 deaths a day. I worked it out for Belgium. That would be seven deaths a day at the peak of the epidemic. I used that in the media. Seven Belgian flu uh, deaths per, uh, per day at the peak of the epidemic would be realistic. That is true in every year, even interpandemically. <laughs> that, that is very, very conservative. <laughs> However, talking about fatalities is important because when you say that, people say, wow, what do you mean? People die because of influenza? And that was a necessary step to, uh, to take. And then, of course, a couple of days later, you had the first uh, H1N1 death in the country. And the scene was set and it was already talked about. And then you had to pick... Okay, so... <laughs> It's pretty clear there. He's making it very clear how you run a narrative whenever you are uh, presenting this kind of information. And a couple of points there. The, the, the one he made about deaths is really the most important thing, I think, because what he's saying is you take a number which is normal. It happens every year, but it's not reported normally. And then you take that number and you start reporting it and people think that there's something special about that number, right? And And then... Well, in this case, what we've done is we've added the effects of lockdown onto that so that we've had some excess mortality. So you take that number and you add a bit more on top and you say this is, a, this is really serious, even though the excess mortality that you've seen has been seen before in history. We've had peaks of similar excess mortality in the past. And then, of course, if you don't uh, take uh, population changes into account, you can make the numbers seem even worse again. But he was absolutely making the point uh, that you simply start reporting the numbers and people will get very concerned very quickly and ask questions, well, you mean people die from this? This is uh, this uh, little piece of video was very, very interesting. Now, somebody in the uh, chat box was asking, uh, is this a leak? Well, it's not a leak. These types of conferences are happening all the time. They're run by organizations like Chatham House uh, and, and other think tanks of this, of this type. Uh, and unless you're watching these conferences, of course, they, the videos go out on YouTube whoever sees them, other than people that are uh, either invited to the conference, know that the conference is happening, or if you've happened to have been watching the UK Column News, or, <laughs> because we tend to report that these types of things are happening on a fairly regular basis, and then, and then you pay attention to it. Otherwise, they don't get media coverage. And this has been a very key point that I've been trying to make uh, really for quite a long time, and that is what's reported in the mainstream press is important. But equally important, if not more so, is what doesn't get reported in the mainstream press because there's stuff going on that we all need to be aware of. So essentially he was saying you take things that are happening really normally in other years, you know, normal death counts, 
normal incidence of, of flu or an epidemic, and then you kind of give it the Alistair Campbell treatment. Yes. You, you sex it up, uh, and then it becomes you know something bigger. You could do the same thing with a seasonal respiratory virus, I'm told. Turn it into a rock star. You know, turn it from a regular uh, busker to, to the Rolling Stones. Uh, and that seems to be what's happened with the coronavirus in 2020. It's become the rock star of seasonal respiratory viruses. Uh, and as has been pointed out in the chat box, if you were paying attention to that uh, little bit of video, Jonathan Van Tam was sitting in the front row. And uh, so he, he had the full briefing. Oh, really? I didn't <laughs> notice that. Fancy that. Yeah. Fancy that. He, he was probably no doubt inspired by, by a great PowerPoint presentation. Yes. Really. Now, uh, we will just end with this one, coming back to this issue of uh, human trials uh, with this fantastic uh, little cartoon that's been uh, doing the rounds on social media. Uh, we've got two mice there, uh, the one on the left asking the one on the right, are you going to get vaccinated? And the one on the right saying, you're crazy. They haven't finished the human trials. That just sums it up, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Well, look, we have to leave it there. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for joining us as usual, Patrick. Uh, hope you have a great weekend. We'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday, and uh, we hope to see you then. Bye-bye.